Hi, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. This is a show about who makes Hollywood tick, the people behind your favorite shows, movies, books, music, other stuff. Also about people that I think are interesting. And one of the people I think is interesting, I've talked to him several times over the years. This is the first time on this podcast, though. It's novelist Lev Grossman. He wrote three of my favorite books of the last decade, uh, The Magicians, Magician King, The Magician's Land, which are just terrific little stories, uh, terrific stories about a group of kids who get into essentially what is a more realistic Hogwarts. Like, that's sort of the description for it, but it's it's much bigger and weirder than that. There's all sorts of fun little tangents uh, and some sort of deeply emotional, realistic fiction-type stuff. And I, I really love these books, and I was so excited when they were going to be turned into a TV series, which I love equally well, but is very different from the books. So I wanted to kind of have Levin to talk to him about like the process of giving up your baby, having it become this other thing that people, it had, you know, it's a show that has devoted fans, has devoted fan base, probably some of whom have never even read the books. And so I wanted to talk to him about that, but I also wanted to talk to him about the process of building fictional worlds because he used to work as the book critic at Time and he has written a lot of times just very interesting, thoughtful pieces about the process of world building and how that also shows in his own work. And he's currently working on a book about King Arthur, who's, you know, kind of a foundational fantasy touchstone. So we talked about that as well. He's always a fascinating guy to talk to. I, I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, but let's uh, let's take a look at what he has to say. My guest today is Lev Grossman. He is a writer of all stripes. He's written several novels, including the Magicians trilogy. He's also a book critic uh, for Time and has written numerous great pieces across the world. Uh, Lev, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. I want to open in a place uh, I think maybe our uh, listeners, I don't know, maybe our listeners don't know this, but I, I pursue like extracurricular writing in addition to my writing for Vox. And I've always like found it, I've always found those things to fulfill two very different uh, beasts within mm. myself, if you will. So I'm wondering like, as someone who has written criticism and has written fiction, like how do you force, how do you see those two things interacting and intersecting in your life? In in many respects, I have tried to keep those uh, those two beasts separate. In that, um, you know, criticism and, and and fiction, they tend to feed upon each other. Um, if I were writing, well, if I were working on a novel on a on a given day, if I were to let the critic loose, I would be probably paralyzed by the incredible <laughs> contempt that the critic would show for the first draft that I was writing. It's a bit like in Total Recall. You remember how that in Total Recall there was a guy who was like the leader of the resistance, except he wasn't the leader of the resistance. He had that weird Siamese twin in his belly who would come out right. um, to yeah. uh, to give the orders. I feel like that the weird Siamese twin comes out to write the fiction and then kind of goes away, and then the other guy wakes up and says, "What just happened?" <laughs> uh, I mean, I, 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 go ahead. There are other respects in which they are um, more sort of symbiotic. Being a critic, you know, you get to survey, you could see what's going on in the literary landscape very clearly. You're sort of sitting up there, uh, you have a lovely sort of, you know, lifeguard chair and, and you can just look up and down the beach and see everything that's happening and all the stuff people are doing and what's exciting and where the energy is. Uh, I, you know, I quit working for Time Magazine about a year ago and ever right, since right, then, right. it's a little bit like I've had to climb down off the chair and... I see books in bookstores, and I have no idea they were even published. Um, and mm-hmm. I realize, you know, gosh, I'm 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 just down here in the trenches, and I I, I can't see everything people are doing, which is something I miss right. a lot. Do you do you miss the the criticism part of it? I always feel like I would if I if I got to a place where I was successful enough to to quit, but maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I would just like not miss having to have critical thoughts about things I'd read or watched. Um, I didn't miss it for a long time. I mean, I worked at Time Magazine for almost 20 years, which is an incredible mm-hmm. fact, and during which time I wrote five novels. 
on you know nights and weekends, cramming them in and the little interstices of my day. I wrote a lot of them on the subway going back and forth. Uh, always feeling as though I wonder what I could do fiction wise if I just had all day. You know, mm-hmm. if I could write, if I could write six, seven, eight hours a day, um, what would that be like? I always wondered, and one of the reasons I, I quit time, and you know, one of the greatest jobs I could possibly have was that I, I felt like I, I needed to find out. But I miss being part of that conversation. Right. I miss weighing in and saying. I love this book. This book is incredibly important and this book does things I've never seen done before um, and everybody should sit up a little straighter and take a look at what's happening here because it's it's amazing. I miss being able to say that. Right, right. What's your what's your working process like when you're when you're writing a novel as as you are at the moment? Like do you do you work well from home or are you somebody who needs to be like out among the people? I used to work I used to work from home. And finally, one day, I said to my wife, "Isn't it great how I work from home? And I'm just here all the time. And just you know, you know, every 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 time you turn around, here I am sitting at my desk in my sweatpants." And she said, yeah. "Rent an office, or I'm going to divorce you." Uh, so I, I don't work at home anymore. Um, I long ago uh, realized that I, I can't be couldn't couldn't be precious about about where where I write or the circumstances under which I write because not only did I have a full-time job, I have three children and between right. the two of those things, I lost, you know, you lose control of your life completely. So I, I right. like I said, I wrote, I wrote on the subway a lot because mm. that was when I had time. But, you know, I'm always still re- reflexively, if ever this 20 minutes of downtime, I've got my MacBook Air in my bag and I just think, I'm going to sit down in this waiting room or, you know, on this cliff edge or wherever I happen to be, and I'm just going to bang out some prose. Right, right. So you don't get writer's block, is what you're saying. You know, it's it, that, that's a crappy thing to say. I would never say that <laughs> word. But um, uh, uh, to put it another way, I don't get writer's block. Or I very rarely get writer's block. Again, right. it was one of those things where, you know, you just you suddenly realized that you, you, you it was just a luxury I had to give up because I had right. so few hours in a day to get my writing done. Right, right. So you don't like I, I'm always fascinated by writers routines, but it sounds like you don't get up at 5 a.m. and try to write before everybody else gets up or something like that. You're just sort of snatching time where you can find it. How how do you think that's I don't know affected your process or how do you feel like that has uh, helped you be a better writer or something like that? Uh, I wonder if it has. I guess it has. I mean, the, the the great thing about having a lot of other stuff going on is um, right. you're constantly. Um, you ever read Blink by Malcolm Gladwell? Uh, yeah, I, I many back when it came out. Yes, so. exactly. <clears throat> Me too. Buzzing. But I always yeah. remembered. Uh, you know, it was this book about um, you know that moment when you first see something that that just nanosecond mm-hmm. where you just unselfconsciously just react to it and it's your reaction is total and authentic and incredibly aware. I remember the story he told about uh, an art curator who in order to get a better sense of the sculptures that he was evaluating, he would hide them in his house and so he would like stumble on them accidentally. He would open a closet and boom, there'd be a sculpture and he'd react to it and then he'd take note of his reaction. I was having that all the time because I would, you know, I'd have a deadline, I would I would have to get on a plane and bang out a story um, really intensely and while doing that, I would completely forget about what was going on in my fiction. And then when I opened up the file with the fiction in it, I had that blink moment. And I would have that. So and then when I went back to the journalism, I'd have that. Um, I had that all the time, that fresh take. And uh, in that sense, you know, having to to down tools all the time and go work on something else, you know, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Right, right. Well, one of the reasons you're here uh, is The Magicians just started its third season on Mm. sci-fi. It's based on your book trilogy, uh, The Magicians and The Magician King and The Magician's Land, all of which I, I love, all of which are, are some of my favorite books of the last 10 years. I, I guess I'm wondering, uh, as sort of the the show is, I would say, faithful-ish to the books. Mm. The characters are more or less the characters, but necessarily the plot has had to go off in other directions because it's going to be a TV show that runs for several seasons as opposed to a three-book series. What has watching the show or seeing other people's interpretations of your books, like what has that revealed to you that was in the books all along that maybe you didn't realize was there? Hmm. That's a good question. I've never been asked before. Um, it, initially, what it revealed to me was that 
I'm a control freak who can't stand other people playing with my toys. When I first <laughs> realized how far the show was going to diverge from the books, I um, uh, I completely freaked out, uh, and you know had several unprofessional tantrums, and um, just generally had to do like a lot of growing up in a hurry because I I hadn't I hadn't, I hadn't realized that they, how differently storytelling works on TV than it does in books, uh, and they really had to reshape the books to make them fit. The, the form of a, of, of, you know, of a TV show where you're telling a little chunk of story every week and mm-hmm. then those little chunks of stories have to um, all fit together into a big arc and those big arcs have to fit together into a bigger arc of the multiple seasons. It's very different from novels. Yeah. Uh, let's see. But, but what, if I, what if I learned that was in there that, that, that I didn't know already? <laughs> I knew a lot already about The Magicians. Uh, I mean, I worked on those books solidly for, for 10 years. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, they made changes that I liked as well as changes that I that I was petty about. Um, right. You know, they – one of the things they did basically was that the, the way the trilogy is structured, the first book's more or less about Quentin and his sort of whole deal and what's going on with him. And then the second book moves to Julia who is the person who didn't get into Hogwarts basically and was left on the outside and kind of had to find magic on her own. They took those two stories and mashed them up together um, and ran them side by side. And I really liked it. And I thought, if I had realized what was going on with Julia while I was writing the first book, maybe I would have done that too. Because they counterbalance each other very well. You know, there's a lot of resonances between the stories that I hadn't noticed before. Um, It was funny what happened if you move them and set them next to each other. Uh, A lot of things that I hadn't planned um, sort of popped out in in a nice way. Yeah, yeah. What have uh, sort of I don't know how involved you were in you probably weren't involved at all in the casting process, but when you first saw like actors playing these parts, like what was the reaction to that? Because a, a thing I hear a lot from people who write TV and, and, and movies is they write like interior living room and then six months later they're on set and like there's this living room set <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God, this, this thing that was in my head is now out in front of me and like. That has to be even greater for someone who's a novelist who doesn't necessarily have the presumption that this will become a thing on, you know, played out by actors. So what, what was your reaction to seeing some of these settings or seeing some of these actors playing people and places that had been in your head? It, it's, a, it's a truly strange sort of borderline, um, borderline indescribable sensation. It's like you're this sort of accidental god. Like you wrote this thing <laughs> and you sort of – I created this world but I mean I just – you know, this was – I mean, not this. This one, I don't mean this to actually be a world. And then, you know, right. the, suddenly the world goes off and be created. And you're like, wow, I, you know, I really meant to change that in the file. And now you've spent $30,000 building it. That's, um, that's just <laughs> – um, it's just it's, – it's, you know, truly odd. But really quite wonderful. I can remember the day that I – one day I, I happened to be in L.A. and they were doing casting. And so I wandered over to the studio lot or whatever the hell they call it to watch them – Audition actors. And uh, I sort of sat in a corner, didn't say anything. Um, and the actors probably wondered, who is that creepy dude sitting in the corner not saying anything? Uh, and it was me. And it was um, – first of all, it was an incredible revenge of the nerds fantasy because like sitting there – I was sitting there and the, all, one incredibly self-possessed, good-looking person after another just came parading through the room. And I just sat there quietly judging them. It's just amazing. I have a sense of power I didn't even realize I'd been waiting for my whole life. Um, right. And I wanted to quit novels and just be a casting agent and stare at these people and <laughs> say, that one's too skinny. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's actually – it's been really wonderful. The people who did the show, the, the, the actors in it aren't famous or they weren't famous. Um, they really plucked them out of nowhere and they found some just incredible people. And you also realize – it's fine for me to write, uh, uh, you know, the character of a woman who grew up in L.A., privileged and is kind of bitchy but also kind of managing some extreme like serious self-esteem problem inside and try to imagine funny and mean things that she would say. But to watch an actual woman do that, um, right. uh, to do that part, you, you realize there are places that – there were places in the character that I would never get to and watching right. them do it. Uh, and you just think, oh, wow, I was, you know, a very clumsy drag queen trying to play this – you camp up this this part and you're just right. doing it, you know, from some way genuine inside you. 
It's amazing. Uh, it's really yeah. remarkable and kind of cool. I, I'm the, the 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 one thing that is um, stressful about it is that I still remember what the characters were meant to look like when they were just in my head. <laughs> they were they were merely figments of my imagination, um, and yeah. I am I'm, I'm hanging on to those images. They're not. I don't want them to be completely colonized by you know the TV images that I see all the time, because um, there was there was a Quentin before Jason Ralph, um, and he's sort of. A misty presence who's growing, growing mistier all the time, uh, but I still yeah. remember him. Yeah, that must be that must be interesting. I think about when I was when the Harry Potter movies were first coming out. Like I had a very specific image of what I thought those characters looked like, and now they just look like the peep the actors they cast. Like right. if I go back and revisit those books, do you? Do you worry about that at all in terms of adaptation that like things in the novel will get solidified for viewers of the show who either find the novels after after coming to the show or have like liked the novels before and then go back and reread them? Oh, I worry I worry about it a little bit. I worry mm-hmm. about climate change a lot more, like, you know, just matter <laughs> of perspective. There there are there are you know, there are things I worry a lot more about that. Um, I worry about my kids getting hit by a car. I worry about that a little bit because I, I know it happens. But um, right. these things are the kind of problems that you want to have and uh, right. they don't keep me up at night. OK. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know if people will know this, but the books were sort of option twice. I mean, I think they were optioned by the same person, but they went out to be turned into a TV show twice. And the first time didn't go. And then the second time did go, obviously. And that's the show that's on the air right now. And that's very unusual uh, for a, a project to get two chances like that. Okay, can you talk a little bit about like your perspective on that process of like, oh, this isn't going to happen, then kind of a, a dead time. And then, oh, it is going to happen. Oh, it was ghastly. It was just ghastly. Um, yeah. I, I really... I'm so determined, major life goal, not to be the kind of writer who sits around waiting for that stamp of approval from Hollywood, you know, to feel like I'm a real writer because my work got adapted by Hollywood. No, I'm a real writer because I wrote a thing and it got published. Um, But I did – I I was invested in in seeing the the adaptation. I knew that if it went on the screen, it would be fun. It would be exciting. Lots more people would see the books and I really wanted it to happen. And I was, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to quit time. I wanted to write fiction full time, and I felt like I needed the boost of Hollywood to get to that place. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, the magicians weren't sent out, uh, weren't, weren't weren't optioned twice. I lost count of how many times they were optioned. At least, oh, wow. at least five or six. They, um, mm-hmm. uh, they, these deals would be put together, and then they would, you know, they would. It was like done. We've got it. It's happening. You know, and then they would fall apart. Um, I, w- I realized quickly that people in LA will never—they'll never tell you you're dead. Nobody will. <laughs> have, nobody ever wants that job of telling you you're dead. You died. Yeah. You're. You're. Mm-hmm. You're. We're, we're sort of embalming you right now, and then we're going to cover you with dirt, and then you're really going to be dead. No one will ever mm-hmm. tell you you're dead. So it takes. It's. It's hard to figure out when your project is dead. But the magicians died five or six times. It. It. Mm. It, it, it died at Sci-Fi once before, oh, wow. and then went elsewhere and came back to Sci-Fi, and then finally, finally lived. So uh, that, that was – it was definitely stressful. It took five years of basically constant campaigning to, to get the show made. And it – you know, there are other – there are other timelines branching out from our own in which it was made in very different ways. Um, yeah. You know, it became like – it got aged down into like a basically like Gossip Girls with Magic kind of thing. Mm. And, you know, it got – it got – it was set in LA uh, at, at one point. You know, there was a great Fox version which – Walked right up to getting made, and then and then didn't. Um, and at that point, I, I assumed that it was dead. So as my as, right. as my producer said to me, "Well, the property has been exposed," um, <laughs> <laughs> which I guess is um, as close to anybody's going to tell you in LA that you're dead. It's made yeah. the rounds, and nobody wants it. So take it and 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 slink back home. Um, right. And then, but then you know, nobody in LA really wants to ever let anything quite go. And so, you know, the day that the auction was the option was expiring, um, I suddenly got a flurry of calls from right. all kinds of people I'd never even heard from who professed themselves to be the biggest magicians fans in existence, and they couldn't wait to make this, sh- this show, except that they'd waited five years and you know already rejected it like six times, uh, including Fox, which wanted to take it up again, uh, and I. I I don't have much pride, but I had enough mm. pride to say I can't go through this with you again, Fox. Goodbye forever. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, um, you know, and then it woke up and people paid attention. And, and amazingly, 
that time it went. It went. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, 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 uh, you know, and here we are. Yeah. The thing I always tell people when they think that a movie's never going to happen is they're still trying to make the Stretch Armstrong movie. Like, not actively, but that's like a thing that they're still trying to, to do. Um, just from your perspective, like, a, a lot of the time the reason something gets made is timing. Like, there's just a hole in the marketplace or people want to compete with a certain show or whatever. But from your perspective, what this current take that made it to the air, like, what did that get that maybe – some of the others had not gotten. Like, what do you think that uh, Sarah Gamble and John McNamara sort of keyed into in the material that made it successful? Uh, the first thing is that they keyed into it. What happened right. in all previous incarnations is that I would option it to a studio. The studio would then find a writer that they had passed out in a hallway somewhere and realize that they'd had sure. an expensive contract with him or her. And so he they would matchmake the magicians with that person. And the fit was often close to right, but never quite right. Sarah and John didn't have a deal with a studio. They were just they just read the books and liked them, um, and they mm-hmm. optioned the books with their own money, which is slightly mm. bizarre. But that meant that it was they were properly they were properly into the material. They were really invested in it. And when we were ready to make the show, they went out as a package and shopped it to networks. So they were, you know, they were properly. They wanted to be there. They wanted to be there, and you know, Sarah had a long history with, with Supernatural. Um, yeah, she understood how to put magic on screen, and John didn't. John didn't have any connection to fantasy or, or science fiction at all. But he had an emotional connection with the uh, with the books, and he's just an incredibly smart storyteller. Uh, and he came at them in a kind of smart self-aware way. He came at them from outside the genre, which I think really gave gave, gave the scripts a, an edge that maybe, you know, I don't know, some other genre fiction didn't have um, because he came in outside it and he questioned everything about the genre. And as we know, when you question the fundamental conventions that govern a genre, interesting things always happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, uh, you yourself have, of course, done a fair amount of that. You, you've pointed out how The Magicians mashes up a lot of influences um, I, we actually – we talked I think around when the second book came out and you mentioned like Brideshead Revisited mm-hmm. as like <laughs> an influence that people wouldn't have thought of. But that was sort of in that mix. But I want to kind of pivot off that question of you taking influences and mashing them up and being like, what has it been like to watch somebody else interpret your work like in the way that you were interpreting others' work into your own personal vision? That's a good question. You mean you mean the way John and Sarah reinterpreted it? Yeah, because it's obviously it's the magicians, it's your characters, it's loosely your storyline, it's mm. your world, but they are doing their own things. There are characters in the show that aren't in the books. There are characters in the show that are sort of based on characters in the books but have gone in different directions. Certainly there's a different perspective on certain events. Even right. just the action of moving Julia into that first season is a very different thing. Before I was a novelist and before I was a critic and a journalist, I was a failed graduate student in comparative literature. This mm-hmm. was in the 90s when when deconstruction and literary theory uh, were still sort of a hot thing. Um, and right. they, one of the things that they would talk about was you know the author being dead. The author's dead. Sure. There's no such thing as the author anymore. All you have is a text and it's a network of signs and people come to it and they bring all this stuff to it. But whatever the author meant doesn't really matter. I learned many untrue things in graduate school, but what, <laughs> that turns out to be true. And, I, and I, I knew it already because when you publish a book, people read it and they find in it such things, just crazy things. You know, it's like a clown right. car. It, they, people just – so many things come out of the book that you didn't even realize were in there and you couldn't even imagine how they fit in there. But when people read things, just something wild happens. You know, they really mm-hmm. – they find things in books. They create meanings in them that, that you know, I just never even dreamt of. So when it got time to for, for John and Sarah to re- retell the stories, I, I, I had to be reminded that they were telling the stories now and they were finding things in them. You know, that was their version of the stories. They they told it in their way, and it, and it meant something a little different to them than uh, it did to me. It would be weird if they if it meant exactly the same thing to them as it did to me. <laughs> right. And you know, in a way, that was that was that was painful. But in a way, right. it was kind of exciting. Like, look, this story, I sort of, I gave birth to it, and now it's wandering around in the world, and things are happening to it that I never even expected. It was sort of exciting, and at times right. exasperating, but 
mostly exciting. You had mentioned earlier that it was a struggle to sort of deal with how much the story was going to have to change to be told on television. Mm. Do you remember some of the changes that initially made you a little uh, upset or hesitant or whatever, and then sort of how you got past that, that phase? Cause I feel like a lot of authors who've had their work adapted do have that phase where it's like, Oh no, this is going to be very different. Even if it's in a good way, different, you know? Yeah. One of the great things about novel, it really makes you appreciate novels when you're watching your novel being turned into a TV show because you realize there are things you do in novels you can't do on TV. Novels, mm-hmm. among other things, are a – they are a long con. They are a long mm. game. And you can go you – can, you can set up expectations for like half the novel that turn out and then completely reverse them. Have a big reveal, right. you know, late in Act 2 and then another big re- reveal late in Act 3, which reverses everything you thought you knew about the whole book up to that point. You can do that in novels. You can't really do it on TV. You can't have a reveal in season five that makes you realize that, you know, somebody was somebody else all along and something was – real that we thought was a lie. It's right. very tricky to do that. So, you know, there are things in, in the book that, 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 you know, it's a big reveal that I've spent so much time setting up. And they had to blow that in the first episode. Um, right. They had to blow, you know, the fact that Fillory is real, which is something mm. that I, you know, I kept back until two-thirds of the way through the novel. And when I, when I read the pilot, I sort of thought, oh, are you kidding? <laughs> That's the best part. You know, as it turns out, you know, when you're Asking somebody to take on a TV show, to become a fan of it and say, you know, you're going to devote 13 hours of your life this, this, this year watching this show, you have to give them a much better idea of what's, of what's in store for them. So, right. you know, they had to blow that reveal right up, right up front. And uh, I remember just sort of shaking my head and thinking, oh, no, no, no. Likewise, you know, the, basically they rushed through the first third of the first novel in the, in the pilot. They right. take you all the way up to a sort of – scary, violent, bloody scene uh, where the beast shows up and that closes out the pilot. And again, I thought, but what about all my lovely lyrical, poetic dialogues and descriptions that you're just skipping over completely? Um, right. That didn't work. Didn't work on TV. Mm. Um, and that's, that, that's, not how they, that's not how they tell stories. And uh, I had to learn that. And I did. And then I was, you know, I, I, after a period of mourning, I came to understand and accept it. And then it was funny when the show – that was like two years later, the show actually came on the air and a lot of fans right. were like, oh my god, how could they do that? And I was like, oh, I remember I was really mad about that um, and now I'm <laughs> over it. But now I, I have to – now I have to – now I'm going to help you, you know, go through this mourning period that I went through and sort of understand why it's cool. Has there ever been a part where – even if it wasn't for this show, has there ever been a part where you wanted to try your hand at, at TV writing, at screenwriting? Oh, I have. I have tried my hand mm-hmm. at screenwriting. I've done it exactly twice. When I was 20 years old, I wrote a spec script for Star Trek The Next Generation on my Mac mm-hmm. Classic. Um, this was in like 1990. And I, I still sure. persist in believing that it was really good. And actually, I, a couple years ago, I went to try to find it on my – I dug up my Mac Classic out of the, out of the basement and booted it up mm. to try to find the script. In a way, it's, I was bummed that I couldn't find it, but in a way, it's probably good because the script was probably absolutely awful, and my memory of it is really <laughs> awesome. So I, I get to keep that. But after The Magician's Land came out in 2014, which is already three years ago, I um, coming up in four years ago, I tried a whole bunch of other different things, and one of them was turning a short story that I had written into a movie, and I spent a year and a half. I thought I would... I thought screenwriting would be easy. As it turns out, right. it is not. It's very hard. And I thought that I would bash this thing out in three weeks. It took me a year and a half. Um, mm. But I wrote a screenplay based on the short story oh. I have. It is now – it was bought. It's now making the rounds of various directors. Uh, maybe somebody will actually make it, uh, mm. which would be great. But yes is the, is the short answer. Uh, I've actually tried screenwriting. It's really right. hard. Then I'll ask the obvious follow-up, which is, did you ever uh, – like George R. R. Martin has written episodes of Game of Thrones. Did you ever have the feeling that you wanted to write an episode of The Magicians? Or because the books are done, has that world sort of not been closed off for you, but is it sort of done for you in your own head? I have a little bit kind of made my peace with, with – I've, I've left Fillory and kind of made my peace with it. It is – it doesn't call to me at this time to come back to it. And at, at the same time, I'm conscious, you know, 
Sarah and John have their own way of telling stories, which is really different from mine. It happens right. that they are using characters from my books and situations and that the tone is actually quite faithful to the tone of the books. But you look at the way magicians' books, the magicians' episodes work, there is all, there's always three plots going on and sometimes four. Right. Things moving move at a frantic pace. They chew through so much story on that show. And they do it so fast. I look at them, and I and it's you know they're they're just running this steeplechase every every episode. And I wonder if I could even do it. I wonder if I could even tell stories that way. Um, mm-hmm. I am, yeah. I'm much. I'm I'm much. I'm very happy to read them and kibitz on them, which I do all the time, and write long emails about this and that about them. But I've never, I've never, I've never been tempted to go in and and actually try to write one. Right, right. I'd, love to, write a, I'd cool. love to write a Game of Thrones episode, George, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you feel like – like the, the, the big thing about Game of Thrones, of course, is that they've moved past the books. Do you mm. feel sort of – do you feel sort of glad that the Magician's books were finished before the show came out because, you know, no matter what happens with the show, no matter how it ends, like the books exist, they are their own thing kind of separate from it. Did, like did you have that feeling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would absolutely do my head in if I was in George's position. George's head is a lot stronger and smarter than mine, and I'm sure he's fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, it would do my head in if I were trying to write magicians', show, magicians books while the show was going on. Um, the fact that they are a sort of discrete object, which I have separated from, and it's sort of sitting there on the shelf – Immovable and change, changeless is it? Is it's a it's a great relief. I mean, I'd be so tempted, in part, you know, to take things that they do on the show and feed them back into the books, but then they're not really mine. But then they sort of are because they started. I'm really glad I'm not playing that head game because I play enough head games while I'm writing as it is. I would find that I would find that very difficult. So here at I Think You're Interesting, we're really busy, as you can probably tell from the frantic pace of our podcast and how all our guests comment on how we're perpetually harried and throwing paper in the air and just generally making a mess of things. And here's the thing. If you're busy like we are, you maybe don't have time to get to the post office to buy stamps or print out shipping labels or things like that. Like it can be difficult to, to find the time in your day. And that is where stamps.com comes in. You can get anything online and on demand. Like I could get groceries on demand. But did you know you can get postage on demand? And that's from stamps.com. And you can print real U.S. postage for any letter or any package right from your home or office 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whenever it's convenient for you. If you are up at four in the morning and you're like, you know what? I really need to send that letter to my mom. Stamps.com. It's the way to get the stamps you need to send the letter to your mom at four in the morning. They'll even send you a digital scale so you can weigh your letters and packages and print the exact right amount of postage every time. And it's so easy to use too. You click, you print, you mail, you're all done. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. It's going to save you time. It's going to save you worry. It's going to save you headache and heartache, all that stuff. And it's never been easier to send out your letters and packages right from your desk. So I have worked out a special offer with Stamps.com for my listeners, and that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. You don't make any long-term commitments. You go to Stamps.com, you click on the little microphone at the top of the homepage, and you type in interesting. That is Stamps.com. You click on the microphone, you enter interesting. One more time, Stamps.com, interesting. Stamps.com, interesting. Turn, turn into a little chant, and then like you'll remember it better. Like that, That's how I do it. One of the big things right now in TV is trying to find new fantasy series to adapt mm. uh, to the degree that Amazon is doing a Lord of the Rings series that is apparently <laughs> just going to be like a that prequel. Like, nobody's... I, I like the cut <laughs> of his jib, man. He's fresh. He's new. <laughs> uh, what are like what are I know that you love this genre. I know that you love this kind of writing. Like what are some books you would love to see come to TV from other authors? Ah, There's so many. There's so many. Joe Abercrombie. Do you ever read Joe Abercrombie? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I First love Law stuff. Trilogy. Oh, he's so good. He's so mm-hmm. good. I study his battle scenes. I study the way he does characters. Um, he, you know, he's on the epic side of the fence. He's more in the George R. R. Martin Tolkien side. But uh, to the point where I've emailed him and said, you know, hey, who's got the rights to your books because somebody ought to adapt them. 
he's the first one to come, that come, comes to mind. But, but there's definitely others. When I was a kid, Fritz Leiber, a name that you don't hear that often anymore, who wrote, uh, among other things, the Fafford and the Grey Master series. Fritz Leiber, at, when I was a kid reading fantasy, he was far more important than Tolkien to me. He loomed very large in my imagination, and I still think about his work all the time. The other day, I, I, somebody asked me to lead a book group, and I said I would if we could do Fritz Leiber, Swords Against Deviltry, or is it Swords and Deviltry? Anyway, Swords and Deviltry figure in the title. And, I said, and they said, great, and then they came back to me and said, well, it's out of print. We can't mm. get the copies. And I couldn't believe it because, you know, for me, that's one of the, the huge pillars of 20th century fantasy. And I'd do anything to see them on screen. I mean, it would be so, so great. Yeah. I've heard those books recommended many times and have tried to find them. They're very hard to find now. I'm sure they're in my library where everything is. But what, what is it that, about those books that, that works for you? Like why, why do you love them so much? Part, it's, it's part the language library. It was just one of these incredibly verbally aware uh, 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 guys who could mix humor with really lyrical writing. His vocabulary was vast. I, you know, there's there's a whole there's a little collection of words in my mind which I know, which I remember particularly because I read them for the first time in Fritz Leiber, and I can you know still remember the context where I read them. I, I think he had a background as a Shakespearean or something. Which, I don't know where I read that, but it makes sense to me. And the characters were very complicated. There was these two heroes. One of them was short and cunning, named the Grey Mouser. One was a huge northern barbarian named Fafford. And their relationship with – they would fall out. They would fight with each other. They would go their separate ways and forget each other existed and then meet each other again. It was so complex and many-sided. And, you know, these people were just – they were so much realer and so much more psychologically genuine than anything else I'd read in in fantasy. Um, Mm. And there was sex in them. You know, so many of that those early fantasies, early 20th century British fantasies, where we're so afraid of sex. You know, there was just right. – it, it wasn't in there at all. Fritz Leiber, not afraid of sex. That stuff was in there. And um, it was compelling, of course, to a 13-year-old boy. But it's compelling to me now because I still think so many fantasy writers leave that out and basically right. have prepubescent characters. And um, Leiber didn't. Yeah. I really am interested in the fact that fantasy seems to do so well on television. Certainly there have mm. been good good movie fantasies, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, some of the Harry Potter films, etc. But it really does feel like television gives fantasy the space to breathe that it needs. Whereas uh, especially right now, TV seems to struggle with like science fiction, which the two those two genres are usually like linked together in the mm. mind. But I'm wondering what you think it is that makes TV – such a welcoming home for fa- for fantasy in particular, at least at this point in time. I, I mean, it's always been an incredibly visual genre. I mean, yeah. it really it traffics in in the sublime and the the mm-hmm. awesome in like you know the old sense of the word. Um, huge long vistas, giant mountains, massive battles, monsters, and things like that. Um, you know, it does it 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 if it's. It, it falls over very easily into camp if done if done poorly, as does anything you know that aims for sublime and like misses slightly. Um, mm-hmm. But now you know there's the visual technology to to make that work on screen, and then also there's something about fantasy right now that people are finding very interesting. Fantasy asks certain questions, I think, that are very important to people currently. Um, mm-hmm. You know, fantasy is uh, – it's this sort of modern sense of fantasy. It was so much created by these Brits in the mid-20th century who were traumatized from World War I and the Industrial Revolution and cities being, you know, electrified and things like that. And they imagined this this prelapsarian British landscape that was green and there was no factories and no machines and no technology and it was just people and the land and their swords hitting each other and casting spells. That world without technology, I think it's one that people are very interested in now that technology is pe- penetrating further and further and further into our world and into our lives. And we've always got these little machines in our pockets that know where we are and you know we can read our email at any moment. The idea of a world where there is no technology, where people are just – they're just, you know, they're not looking at screens. They're in the world. They're doing things with their hands. It's a very interesting thing right now. Um, I think people mm-hmm. are trying to remember that and sort of get a sense of what we lost when we let technology in. And, you know, fantasy really explores that. 
Right, right. You are working on a, a book about King Arthur, who's uh, that's kind of a foundational uh, fantasy text, if yes. you will. What have you sort of like by looking at that world, those characters through the eyes of the 2010s? Like what, like what have you, what have you realized about? Uh, I guess what's made them stick around for thousands of years at this point. I used to think that there were not going to be any more King Arthur's. That it, that, that that tradition had been nicely tied off, basically by T. H. White and Marion Zimmer Bradley, um, mm-hmm. who had filled in the last white areas on blank areas on the map, and there was nothing more to be said. And yet, you know, when I started pulling out little threads at the edge of King Arthur, I started to realize that there was something more there. There was mm-hmm. something more there. Just as an example. Historically, King Arthur, who was he? Well, he was a warlord or some kind of war leader, a general in late 5th, early 6th century Britain. He was a remnant of the Roman colonial occupation of Britain. He was what they call a Romanized Britain. Rome had ruled Britain for four centuries. Then they left abruptly and they left people like Arthur behind. If you think about that, He's a he's Britain was a post-colonial nation at that one, at that point. We think of Camelot as you know being this wonderful ideal you know m- model of I don't know kingship and leadership, um, right. but Arthur would have been a Romanized Brit, Christian speaking Latin, but his people weren't. His people would have right. been Celts. They were speaking British, um, and they would have been worshiping the Celtic pagan. Pantheon, they probably viewed him as a relic of the oppressors, which essentially he was. Mm-hmm. How does that change the story? Suddenly, there's all kinds of politics in it that we um, and and power relations that we don't associate with King Arthur. But historically, they were there. What would happen if you restored them to that story? How would it change the story? It's the kind of thing that I found myself curious about, and which drew me back to King Arthur. Right, right. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about world building. Because mm. um, I think world building is a really interesting topic, and and uh, I think you have a lot of interesting things to say about it. But I, I want to lead into it by asking: when you were coming up with Fillory, mm. the magician's books, you know, it's Narnia, but also not Narnia. Like mm-hmm. it has some Narnia things <laughs> to it, but you also expanded like sort of what the idea of that was. Can you can you talk about like your process of coming up with like the rules that were going to govern that world? Yeah, I, I think people. When they talk about world building, when they think about it, um, and I know I've done, I, I've come to think people kind of have the wrong end of the stick, you know, mm. because you're really not, no one's building worlds anymore. It is rare that there is a world so original that it has to be built from scratch. You know, as soon as you mention that they may say there's elves or dwarves in a, in a world, people know a lot about that world. They know that there are deep sylvan forests with skinny, tall, good-looking people in them. And there are mountains, you know, with deep mines, with, you know, sturdy, bearded dwarves chipping away at them. Those words, worlds are already in our heads. They're completely built. So when – and if you want to – you can do new things with them. But you're, you're really – you know, you're renovating. You're not, you're not right. building from scratch. There is a pre-existing structure there. So when I approached Fillory, you know, what I was really doing was – in a way, kind of updating Narnia. You know, Narnia, Lewis was a great world builder, but he was incredibly sloppy by kind of right. modern standards. His, Narnia was not up to code. Um, you know, it has, <laughs> he, when he, just, he just would slap things in there. You know, if he wanted fawns, he'd put fawns uh, from Greek mythology. And then he, here comes Santa Claus. You know, we've got Santa yeah. Claus in there too. You know, most people have like feudal technology in Narnia. You know, they're fighting with swords. But Mrs. Beaver... Has a sewing machine, which is a right. nice piece of Victorian early industrial technology. It doesn't all add up and fit together. So, you know, part of it was just let's take Narnia, but let's take it maybe a little more seriously than Lewis did. Let's try to imagine what the politics and economy and ecology of this world would really be. What would happen if you took a, a group of children and just plopped them down in this country, which is in the middle of uh, an entrenched decades-old civil war um, right. and, you know, watch – what if you – then these kids try to sort of intervene in it? What would happen to them? Probably complicated, you know, not good things. So, you know, in a way I was just – I was just taking Narnia and I was just trying to to look at it the way – you know, the way that 
George R. R. Martin looks at, at, at Westeros, try to make it conform to contemporary ideas of how worlds work. And what you end right. up is, in some ways, a more textured, darker, more complicated version of Narnia. And uh, in some ways, less sublime, less beautiful, sort of more degraded. But in some ways, other ways, kind of more interesting. And that was my yeah. approach, really. Take Narnia and just kind of renovate it. Yeah, yeah. What you're saying about about the Narnia books reminds me of my experience as a kid with um, the Oz books, mm. which I loved. But mm-hmm. you could tell L. Frank Baum was just like, I don't know, there's some other shit going on over there. <laughs> um, and like he was just making stuff up yeah. as he came up with it. And I think about like a lot of these series that have had this sort of time-honored status of like becoming classics, whether it's uh, outside of like Tolkien, who very obviously sat down and came up with his world. But even something like Star Wars has that sort of feeling of a lot of stuff being introduced, you know, like we're going to expand the parameters of the world every so often. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you like? When do you think that shift comes where now it feels like we want to have very carefully structured and built worlds, you know, that makes sense if that if that question makes sense. Oh, it does completely. It would be someone ought to do a dissertation where they figure out when this happened because um, it, it is incredibly interesting. I can certainly remember reading Robert Jordan, um, the Wheel mm-hmm. of Time books. And this was it's in the early 90s. And there was one point at which somebody asked – the hero, I think his name is Rand. I should know because I read eight novels in the series. I didn't get all the, I didn't get all the way, but I read a lot of time, a lot of these books. I think it's Rand, and he's a he's a he he does magic. And somebody asked him, "Oh well, you know, so what actually happens when you're kind of using magic to light a candle, um, right. or I think it's extinguish a candle?" And he says, "Oh well, you know, I'll tell you. Uh, I just." There's this candle. There's a lot of heat in it. So I just draw the heat out of it and I have to put the heat somewhere. So I, I, I just put it into that mantelpiece over there, which absorbed the heat. And it got a little bit hotter. But that's all that happened. I moved the heat around. And I remember having to put the book down and think, wow. So he just made magic obey basically the laws of thermodynamics. I found that incredibly fascinating. Like right. what if you kind of – move things into just like slightly higher definition and kind of force things to be a little bit more rule-based. Um, it made the world feel so much realer to me. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. Gandalf never worried about the laws of thermodynamics. Forget it. <laughs> Gandalf never went to wizard school. He just was a wizard and he just did right. spells when he felt like it because he didn't. He, he couldn't be bothered with that stuff, which was fine back then. But at some point, um, I'm sure Robert Jordan was not the tipping point, but that's I think when I personally tipped, and I realized, wow, what if you made these, what if you made these works a, a little bit look a little bit more like the real world? Would they feel realer? And uh, the answer for me was um, they really did. The late right. Ur- Ursula Le Guin, uh, Earthsea, was another example. The way mm-hmm. she taught magic to her wizards on on Roke and made them obey a kind of language-like system of rules was, again, um, I suddenly realized, oh, wow, you know, magic, it's not science. It's not, you know, it's not like physics. It's not bound by laws in that way, but it is kind of rule-based and um, right. that felt real to me. You know, I bet Dungeons & Dragons was a big influence there too because, of course, yeah. they took fa- fantasy and sort of made it they made up rules that it had to play by, and um, I think that was a big influence on a lot of writers. I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of the internet because the internet feels like this collective society-wide world-building project that we really screwed up. Because um, <laughs> I think – like you've written a lot about early tech and things like that, and I mm-hmm. think like my teenage years coincided exactly with the rise of the internet. Mm-hmm. So like I have these fond – Nostalgic memories of like, I don't know, GeoCities pages or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I do wonder like if some of it is just like this this rise of like we have a place now where we can codify everything. And like that has led to wanting to do that with fictional worlds, with wanting everything to make sense. But again, like you said, Robert Jordan predates that. So it's obviously earlier than that. But I, I do feel like sometimes the Internet played a part in it, if you will. Mm, mm, it's true. I, if nothing else, authors certainly are now aware that if they break their own rules, they will hear about that shit on Twitter. And you know, the better better to just not break it. Don't break the rule. You know, <laughs> take care of your world building in advance, because otherwise, Twitter will do it for you, um, and, what, it, and they'll, what, they'll do it roughly. 
what's the thing that people bring up to you on Twitter, if anything? Oh, gosh. Um, there's there's a lot of things. Uh, it's just I'm now this parade of shame is going past my head, uh, <laughs> in part because I, I did make mistakes uh, in the books that I didn't catch in time. Uh, Janet has two different last names in the books, which, you mm-hmm. know, you'd think that stuff would have come to my attention. You know, there's just – there's little things. Uh, I screwed up the geography of upstate New York, uh, which mm. is sad because that's the state that I live in. Um, I screwed up Antarctica's geography too, which is amazing because I worked really hard on that, but I still screwed it up. Um, mm. You know, there's just little things around the edges, continuity problems that I that – that slipped through my fingers and the fingers of the eight other people who were supposed to catch them. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I've been reading the book – Little Women. You may have heard of it. Little uh, Women. Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> by yeah. Uh, by Louisa May Alcott. Uh, mm. And I am impressed. This is going to sound weird, but I'm impressed by the world building in <laughs> that book. Like the little town in that book, you know where everything is. You know mm. where all the people live. Like you know how they relate to each other in like the first 20 pages. Yeah. And like I've just – it's like a model of economy. Mm. And you've talked – you've talked like I said earlier, you've talked with me about how Brides had revisited like – you find it an interesting world building exercise. So yes. uh, just kind of kind of before we head into the end of the show, I want to ask you about what are some examples of great literary worlds you can think of that are not necessarily fantasy, sci-fi, horror, like a little more realistically grounded? It's interesting. It's a good, it's a good question because we think of world building as a, as a fantasy and science fiction thing as if other fictional worlds actually weren't fictional and you didn't have to build them. People build these great worlds. They look exactly like our world. So we sort of forget that they're world-building exercises. But, uh, you, know, for, for, you know, for me, on a par with, you know, Tolkien's Middle Earth is Joyce's Dublin. Mm-hmm. Joyce was not living in Dublin when he wrote uh, Ulysses. Uh, he was in Trieste and then I think in Paris. But he was laboring over street maps. He was writing letters to people in Dublin, getting them to check check facts. And, you know, the way the characters just sort of knock around inside Dublin like little pachinko balls mm. in this wonderfully synchronized dance. Uh, and he's figuring out how long it would take to walk from one place to another even when he's living in exile abroad, that's just you know it's just it's it's a marvelous thing. Um, Wolf's uh, London in Mrs. Dalloway, I think of in a similar way. You know, she has this narrator that flits from place to place in a kind of ghost ghost like way all around London, um, and you can see everything fits together into this uh, into this wonderful you know whole living metropolis. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just Wolf would never would never have said that she was a world builder, but she was a world builder and she was uh, a real past master at it. Right. What do you think is the key to finding an interesting fictional side of a real place? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I think it's – obviously it's, it's paying attention to – it's paying attention to sort of the emotional hotspots in that place, which aren't right. necessarily – always necessarily the places that you would think, the, you know, the emotional hotspots in Manhattan – or Brooklyn for me, obviously they're not, you know, it's not the Empire State Building and the Statue of Liberty. It's not the places you would think. It's these little interstitial places that look completely normal to other people, but to me have these powerful, powerful associations. You know, it's looking at the places where, that everybody else ignores and just walks by and uh, spotting them and um, looking really hard at them and, and drawing people's attention to them, you know, drawing attention to the things that are in their blind spots. It, that, it's something I always love to find when I'm when I'm reading somebody else's work. Right, right. Well, we end every show by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you those questions now, uh, starting with uh, what is the last uh, book you read or TV show you watched or movie you saw, just the last pop culture thing you took in or high culture thing you took in and like what did you think of it? (laughs) Um, Let's see, the very last thing. um, It was probably Turtles All the Way Down, the John Green novel. Right, which was uh, I'm I'm a big John Green fan. Um, yeah, and I cry a lot. I'm a big crier. But the last book that made me sob uncontrollably was was uh, The Fault in Our Stars. Yeah, and Turtles all the all the way down. It's um well, it's a great piece of world building uh, in that it's it's the kind of midwestern. It's set in the kind of midwestern city. I want to say Indianapolis that you don't see a lot of fiction set in these days, but it becomes very vivid and mythologized uh, in your mind as you read it. You know, I thought it was, I thought it was great. There's so much intelligence in his work. 
mm-hmm. and so much complexity. Uh, yeah, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, yeah. What is the best meal you've ever had, whether the quality of the food or the quality of the company? You can interpret it how you want, but just the best meal you've had. Let's see. Uh, I, I've had a lot of good meals. I, food is very interesting to me. I, <laughs> when you write a book, they, they send you a little questionnaire to try to make you seem like an interesting person and they ask you what your right. hobbies are. And I realized I didn't have any except for cooking. That's my only, the only thing I have that even approaches a hobby. But, I mean, the meal that comes to mind – this is a cheap answer, but um, the meal that comes to mind – I just got back from Scotland where I spent a week and while I was in this small town in Scotland, I didn't taste anything that tasted like anything. Everything was fried, you know, just to the point of extinction. And uh, I came back just like so desperate for anything that tasted like something. So I made an incredibly spicy um, Korean Korean steak and eggs, which is the sort of right. signature dish of um, a restaurant called The Good Fork, which is in Red Hook in Brooklyn. And, you know, it was almost worth going for a week of like total taste de- deprivation to have that feeling mm-hmm. of just – Digging into something incredibly spicy and savory. That's the meal that I remember with also a bottle of good wine. That's the meal that I remember. It's crowding out all other good meals I've ever had. Um, <laughs> uh, but that was, a, that was a good one. Yeah, yeah. And finally, who is the writer you've learned the most from that you've never met, dead or alive? Mm, easy. Alan Moore. Alan Moore. Never mm. met Alan Moore. Spent a good significant fraction of my life thinking about Alan Moore and his work. Mm. Um, Watchmen uh, and Miracle Man's kind of together, you know, they just they, – they, 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 they taught me all the tools that I used in, in The Magicians. I use a lot of other stuff, a lot of other raw material, but the tools I used to write it, I got it all from Alan Moore. He's mm. such a dominant presence for me um, in, in my sort of – in my mind and in my work. And maybe it's OK that I haven't met him. Uh, I don't know because he's done, he's done enough for me. I think if I met Alan Moore, I would be a little terrified, to be honest. He's like, quite he tall. Like he descend, yeah, he descends from the mountain <laughs> and like issues proclamations. What's what's the big thing you've learned from him? Like what have you taken from his work? Oh, the thing I took from his work uh, and from really from Watchmen and Miracle Man, also, also League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, was, you know, he – in Watchmen, he wrote a superhero novel and you could see the just slavering – Hatred of superhero stories in that. He just – everything about them rang false to him. You know, just right. who are these people? Why would they do this? It makes no sense. They're obviously incredibly sick, confused people, desperate, psychopathic, you know, alcoholic, self-hating, um, hating other people. That's, you know, that's the kind of people who would do this and everybody who writes anything different is lying to you. And and he wrote, and he wrote that story and – as a, in, in doing so, he wrote the greatest superhero story that has ever been written. Um, mm. And I suddenly – I realized when you feel frustrated with a genre, when you feel angry at it, you should pay very close, very close attention to that feeling because you've spotted something. Uh, you've spotted somewhere where it's lying and then you can go yeah. and tell the truth. Mm. Well, that's a great note to end on. Lev Grossman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the world this podcast is set in. It's a world very like your own, but also it's a world where uh, if I walk up the street, there's like an Arby's and we could go there and have a sandwich, I guess. Um, it's weird that like I'm in Hollywood and like like the thing I think about is uh, that there's an Arby's nearby. I don't know what that says about me, <laughs> but I am Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting. And I was not paid by any fast food chains for this episode. Uh, I just started talking about them. So we're going to do the closing credits before I lose my mind. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. The executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. The sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is from Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and our studio are thanks to P3 Post. And our editor this week was Jarrett Floyd. Our recording engineer, as always, is Che Brooks. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, on CastBox, on Google Music, on something, 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 on all of these places. Please do so. Helps people find the show. Helps people find out what's going on. And it helps us get 
the amazing guests that we get every week. You can write to me at Todd at Vox.com if you have something you want to share that's not in a podcast. You can write to the show if you have something you want to share that you don't want to put in a review. You can write to the show at ityi.podcast at Vox.com, ity.podcast at Vox.com. You can also tweet at me at TVOTI Tavoti. We will be back next week. We're going to be talking to Josh Feldman, Shoshana Stern, and Andrew Ahn from the new Sundance Now show, This Close. Don't run away because you you have not heard about the show. It's a wonderful show, and it is the first television show in American history to be created, written, and showrun by deaf people. Uh, both Ms. Stern and Mr. Feldman are deaf, and they talk about the deaf experience, but also it's a show about, like, finding your way in the world and relationships and all this fun comedy. It's 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 a really cool show. I think you're going to love our chat with them. Uh, and uh, spoiler alert, we recorded it in a really fun location, which you'll get to find out about next week. Until then, however, if you run across a talking bear in a bar somewhere... Be sure to bring him just like some pastries. That's what bears love. 